So the idea behind this podcast is to have a conversation between mm -hmm. two people who are interested in the okay. topic. Good. And it, so it's not, not super an fancy. Good, good, good. It's definitely yeah. not an interview. Okay. A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, I'm Patrick Fine. Welcome to a Deeper Look podcast. I'm joined today by Sarah Chase. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, this is the first episode of the 2019 season. And as our returning listeners know, this year we have a new theme the darker side of development. So we're going to be talking about the paradoxes and unintended consequences and some of the adverse effects of development efforts, the issues that we as the development community too often shy away from discussing. We'll release a new episode monthly, so subscribe wherever you get your podcast and follow the hashtag a deeper look to keep up with the conversations. I'd love it if you leave comments about the conversations you hear and also if you suggest issues related to the darker side of development that you think should be tackled on this podcast. Today I'm starting off with a person who brings a pretty unique perspective to development efforts. Sarah Chase started as a journalist based in France and covering North Africa. She went to Afghanistan in 2001 I mean, I went right as the bombing campaign started and so, went into Afghanistan just days after the fall of the Taliban. She worked first as a journalist, then then you established a... A nonprofit. A nonprofit. Can you say a little bit about the nonprofit? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were different iterations, but what I ended up spending most time doing was just a small manufacturing. It was a manufacturing cooperative making high-end skincare products mm -hmm. out of licit local agriculture. And I did that really because the Afghans around me were saying, we need jobs. Why aren't you foreigners employing us? And so this was tiny, but the idea was, you know, an economy is made up of a variety of just like a mosaic made up of different little chips. And what struck me was that, I mean, southern Afghanistan, you wouldn't believe it. The place looks like the moon, but it's got the most incredible plethora of fruit. I mean, you've never seen the pomegranates, the grapes. They don't even have a word grape, they, or they don't have a word apricot, because they got so many different varieties that they just name oh. the variety name. You know what I mean? And, I mean, this place, it's just, it's, it's, it's um, bounty from the desert. It's amazing. But the problem with fruit, as a cash crop, which it is, it's not a subsistence crop, is that it's heavy and perishable. And so what I was thinking about is how do you do something, at least with some of that bounty, that could be less heavy and less perishable and so easier to export. And so that was to process it into skincare products. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So you did that for eight years, is that right? I mean, I was there total a decade um, between different ventures. So that is one, an amazing transition from a <laughs> journalist who is there chronicling and reporting on events to a social entrepreneur who's embedded in the right. community, becomes right. a member of the community, exactly. and is really doing grassroots development. You can't get 
much grasser roots than right. that. <laughs> and you were based in Kandahar. Kandahar. Just say a little bit about the context of Kandahar yeah, while you live there. It's interesting. I mean, Kandahar, it tended to be overlooked because Kabul you know, is officially the capital of the country. But if you glance back at history, you see that Kandahar is central to the identity of Afghanistan. It's where the country was founded. It sits on the border between two gigantic, you know, empires that sort of rubbed up against each other right there. And in fact, was the Taliban's real capital. They sent some people up to Kabul, but they ran the country and Osama bin Laden were in Kandahar. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that this was the place to be. And so that's why I, I wanted to put myself down right there. But it was also, and I think still remains, one of the most contested areas yeah, in exactly. Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it had been the Taliban heartland because it's close to Pakistan, who was really generating, ginning up the Taliban, if you will. Um, Supporting them, financing them. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, actually invented them. Right. It was Pakistan that invented the Taliban in the first place. Not that, you know, they didn't tap into some real grievances and desires on the part of Afghans, but they came up with the formula, which was the Taliban. And so it swirled around. And it got really bad in about 2008, 2009. It got really hot. And so, you know, stuff was going off every day. And... That was around the time that you shifted to working for the Pentagon, That's correct? right. That's right. Now, it wasn't the Pentagon. It was the military, uh -huh. but it wasn't initially the Pentagon. Remember, this was a NATO deployment, and the South was not primarily American at that time. And so who I first interacted with were Brits, Canadians, and Dutch who were cycling through command of the South. But your position then was as a senior advisor? Eventually, yeah. To the regional command? No, no, no. I went straight. So the first job I had, like I would train these incoming units and eventually the commander in chief of NATO heard about me. So this was like weird, right? <laughs> like I get this phone call, email, something like that. A very important person wants to meet you at the base. I'm like, who? Well, we can't tell you. I'm like, well, I'm not driving down <laughs> Sniper Alley to meet someone that I don't know who they are, right? You know, so this ends up being the commander in chief of NATO, who I just lay out what I think is going. I'll never forget. It was John Craddock at the time. And he's like, you know, sort of going, oh, you know, when I'm sort of saying, well, guess what? Our enemy is the government of Afghanistan. And unless we address that, we're going to lose the war, you know, and things like that. But challenging some of his challenging assumptions. some assumptions, although he had a pretty interesting beat on it, it turns out. So my first job with the military was literally working for him. But the job was write me something every two weeks, whatever you want, just write me something about something you think is important that's going on in Afghanistan every two weeks. The reason I think you're such a good guest for this first episode is because of your very interesting touch points on international development. Mm. Your experience is not limited to Afghanistan. You have this trajectory as journalist, community development worker, and social entrepreneur, and then working for the military as a strategic advisor. Right, and I did end up being 
a strategic advisor to the command of all the international troops in Afghanistan and then to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that's where I was kind of looking at what the U.S. military was doing. You know, obviously my expertise was South Asia, but, you know, then the Arab Spring blew up. So that's where I tapped into my North Africa experience going across for Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I said, boss, send me out on the ground so I can help read what is going on here. Because you remember the Arab Springs, it, it was a surprise. 2011, and 11, yes. Right. I mean, in the way I started to see this, and this is really the meat of it, is that these conflicts or these explosions didn't have to do with a lot of the tropes that we usually talk about, like some wild ideological, you know, passion. Nor, you know, in the case of the Arab Spring, was it just the sort of structural economic forces of, quote, youth bulge and unemployment. I had discovered over these years that these economies, these political economies had been captured. All right. So here's my first big question for you. These economies have been captured, but we're talking about both in Afghanistan by 2009. So you've been there for eight years by that time. And in the North Africa and the countries affected by the Arab Spring, those are countries where the international community have spent decades, in the case of North Africa and the Arab countries, and 10 years in the case of Afghanistan, trying to promote prosperity and rights through international development activities. Did that work? Did they produce any benefits? Doubtless. I mean, you can point to number of vaccines delivered. You can point to reduction in mortality. You can, you know. But fundamentally, here's the problem. Here's what we don't see, is we are so captivated by the surface level of institutions like government and business and criminals and terrorists, and we think of those as separate categories. And what I discovered and it took me years in Afghanistan, and then it became obvious once I started looking at other countries. The point is there are integrated networks that combine, that weave across these sectors. What kind of networks? So they are networks, you know, in a country like Afghanistan, they're largely bound together by kinship, by having fought on the same side in the Civil War or against the Soviets, whatever, but they're very close personal networks. What's important about them, though, is that they bridge across these different sectors. So you've got the governor, and then you've got three construction companies and a gravel company. Well, it turns out all three construction companies basically belong to the governor via some proxies and the gravel company, too. And then it turns out that the opium smugglers are also part of the governor's network. So you have this incredibly powerful network that actually snakes around and weaves together the top people in public sector, private sector, and the criminal sector very often. And I've seen this repeated again and again and again from Honduras to Tunisia to Lebanon to South Korea to Romania, I mean, you name it, to, frankly, the United States. 
I mean, it's pretty scary. Once you start doing some of this network diagramming, it's like, oh my God. And the point is, we all live in networks, right? I mean, I live out in the country in West Virginia and my, my ducks, you know, my diving ducks <laughs> live in networks, right? A network per se isn't evil. What's evil is when a network captures all of the levers of real power in a society and then bends them, torques them to serve the purposes of the network. Which is to extract resources. The purposes of the network is to capture money. It's to, yes, capture the resources or capture any resource that can then be converted into cash. Because you know what? In the world we're living in now, money has become almost the exclusive marker of social standing. So people compete over money, not because they need more and more and more. You don't need it. It's because that's the marker, that's the standard yeah, on which you... That's how you validate yeah. your social standing. Exactly. That's, and that's how you compete. That's how you win. You win by having more zeros in your bank account. Right. The problem with that race is there's no finish line. Right? You've got six zeros after your name. Well, I need seven. Well, then you need nine. And then the really dangerous part about that is, yeah, the banking system or the finance sector can make money out of nothing for a while. In the end, it always comes back to real values like houses. You know, tangible, tangible, assets. real assets. And the point is, when you build a higher and higher speculative thing, even on the housing market, eventually it comes down. But when you build this on the mineral wealth of a country, when you build it on fossil fuels, when you build it on the air, water and land, when you build it on the effort and creativity of human beings and you convert all of that into cash and you rig the system to facilitate your converting it into cash, that way lies, frankly, very, very severe destruction. So what you're describing are networks that operate in a way to corrupt the system that's or exactly to corrupt right. society. Yeah, corrupt the system. I think that's right. And, and, and they do, you're right, in the process, corrupt society. And in so doing, they, they extract resources, they contribute to increased inequality. Right, because they're capturing the resources for themselves. And using that both to empower themselves. So and, that they can get more money. Right, and the end result is that everybody else gets disempowered or, or disadvantaged. And impoverished. So you mentioned that you see these networks snaking their way through the institutions of society. Correct. Governmental, business, non-governmental, faith-based organizations as sure. well? Sure. All right. And how do you see the efforts of international development actors like the UN or any bilateral development agency or the nonprofits? How do you see them affected by these networks? Largely, I see them as blind to the networks and therefore carrion for the networks. Do you see them collaborating with the networks? Certainly. But usually, usually, inadvertently. But the point is, if the role of the network is to capture revenue streams, that is its aim, its purpose in life. Guess what? International development assistance is a gigantic revenue stream. Right. So they're going to be all over it. 
And the networks tailor themselves almost as a receptor cell, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for those international development actors. And they do this by talking the talk. I mean, they figured out exactly what the development actors want to see, providing the metrics, you know, and all this kind of thing. But, but, but what that hides is that those development resources have largely gone directly into the pockets of the... So those development resources are being captured. Hijacked. You mentioned that you also see it in the U.S., and I think that's a very fair observation. But I have a question for you. In the U.S., I see some of these practices where resources, say at a, at a community level or a municipal level, are getting captured, and instead of achieving their objective of extending services to the disadvantaged or, or reducing inequality, uh, they're captured and they have the opposite impact. But they're captured through legal means. Sure. So the mechanisms, there's nothing illegal about the mechanisms. Well, so here's what I would say. The ideal for a network like this, why it wants to infiltrate government, is precisely in order to bend the rules and, and agencies of government to serve the network rather than serve the people. You know, just look at the regulatory rollbacks the under, current ones? of the current administration, right. right? But let's go back and look at Bill Clinton's. Under Bill Clinton, the regulatory rollback on the financial services industry and the sell-off of, it's not government property, it's the property that belongs to the U.S., population. It's all of our property. And that's what's fascinating. As you start to look at some of these networks in the United States, you notice suddenly the blue-red divide in the United States, it dissipates because the networks cross over, both consulting and investing in developing countries in the third world with their governments and with these vulture investors, you know, the ones, um, what was it, Elliott Management? Elliott Management was one of the ones that snapped up debt from Peru and Argentina right. and stuff oh, like that, oh, and, and then launched yeah, and, and then, then launched these legal right, suits right, to right. extract full payment of that debt for the profit of Elliott Management to the detriment of the ordinary people and in, in Peru and case, Argentina. In that case, you had the U.S. using its sovereign power to support that investment company. And so that really, That's at least exactly from my perspective, was the corrupt aspect of right. that, although it wasn't illegal. So there you go. very often when we talk about corruption, including in places like Afghanistan, what we are referring to are acts that are illegal. They're fraud, extortion. So legal, legal, <laughs> here's the point. When you control the writing and the enforcing of the laws, suddenly a lot of wrongdoing becomes legal. So let me give you another example from the United States. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution, calling for equal protection of the laws and due process, was designed to protect freed slaves after the Civil War. By 19, I might have my numbers a little bit off, but by 1910, at least 300 cases had been brought by corporations getting the 14th Amendment applied to them and winning. And less than a dozen cases were brought by freed slaves and they all lost. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not trying to say that there's no difference between legal and illegal. 
What I'm saying is that the ideal of a kleptocratic network is to get deep enough inside government that it can ensure that the laws are written to protect and enhance its operations, to especially ensure impunity for its members and its ability to punish people who are getting in its way. That is a common tactic by dictators or other authoritarians. One of the first things they do if they're effective is they seize control or they try to undermine the independence of the judiciary. So Zimbabwe is a good example of that. So I would, I agree with that, and all I would say is substitute the word kleptocratic for dictatorship, because we have this tendency, once we think that a country is democratic. Would you say that all countries are somewhere on that spectrum of being controlled by kleptocratic networks? I think it's a great, great and troubling question. And what I'm coming to is this. I think this syndrome arises sort of like a pandemic or a fever periodically. So let, let me put this this way. Violence is a constant in human society. Right. right. There isn't a it's part single, of our species. Part of our species. War is not a constant. It's it recurs. War is a particularly intense, widespread, organized, and socially sanctioned form of violence. Yes. You could think of this organized type of corruption in a similar way. It's a particularly, there's always corruption in human society, but this syndrome is a particularly intense, widespread, organized, and strangely, socially sanctioned would you say form that, of corruption. Would you say that globalization has contributed to making it more widespread? I think it has, but I've been looking at the Gilded Age. Yes. And it's utterly so fascinating. So the 1890s, so 1880s to exactly. about 1920. Yeah, exactly. I think Mark Twain wrote the book, The Gilded Age, yes. in 1873. Okay. So let's push it back to yeah. there. But you're exactly right. And my God, I mean, I suspected as much, but I hadn't quite crystallized it. In Europe, it was exactly the same. They had crash after crash. There was a panic in, of 1873 started in Vienna. And it was what? It was real estate. It was real estate speculation. It was basically 2008. And then bang, a bunch of European banks go down. I mean, it was a couple decades of depression in Germany Mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. Banks go down. Well, guess what? They owned a whole bunch of US railroad securities. So within like four months, Jay Cook and company goes kaput in Wall Street, Wall Street, huge panic. That was kind of the kickoff for it. And so what I want to say is this has been a globalized world for a long time. I studied medieval Islam. You look at medieval Islam, it's an incredibly globalized situation, totally globalized banking system. They were so far ahead on banking, basically until they gave it to the Templars in the Middle Ages. But what I'm saying is globalization alone doesn't do it. It's an ethos question. It sounds like you're saying that it's just part of our nature to form these networks and then to have these networks actually act in a malign way. So I think that human nature holds both, and that's what makes us so complicated. Both. Both a tendency to create hierarchies that are actually pretty extractive hierarchies Mm -hmm. that are pretty verticalized and extractive. That, I mean, look at chimps. But... What we developed very differently from chimps for 100,000 years, enough time to change our genes and our brains, our very plastic brains, 
was an egalitarian tendency. So hunter-gatherer tribes are egalitarian because they have to share the resources. They can't survive otherwise. And that means you get an alpha who wants to hog more than his share of the resources, he's going to get swatted down so fast in a hunter-gatherer tribe. And we did that for 100,000 years. Then when we settled and started building cities and things like that, we start developing these hierarchies again. And so the two are in tension. So let me tell you what I think happened. I think we got into a paroxysm of this vertical, extractive, gimme, gimme, meat hogger thing right. during that, the Gilded Age. That is, that is connected to social status. Exactly. Where it's money instead of meat. And identity. Right. right. And right. it's money instead of meat. That's exactly right. Then, that partly because of that syndrome, much of the world was plunged into a paroxysm of such catastrophe. If you look at World War I, the Depression, World War II, you get two genocides, you get a massive depression, you get a pandemic of the Spanish flu sure. that wipes out 100 million people. I mean, you're looking at international calamity on a scale that had not been experienced before. Now, what happens in Houston when the hurricane hits. People start helping each other out. When your community is hit by a real disaster, the human instinct, that's where the egalitarian side right, of us right. really so comes out, right? The, the right? brighter angels that, of our it, nature. That's right. And suddenly it doesn't matter if you're in Houston, if you're black or white, it doesn't matter if you're the 1% or the 99th percent. People are helping each other. Who's got a boat? They start right. calling it, right? So imagine the world on the scale of that kind of calamity. I think that's what gave us 35 years of relative So from about 1945 to 1985. Oh, yeah, something like that, yeah. 1980. Sure, sure. And then we started And that's the, you know, interestingly, that's the classic age of international development. Where that's you, right. Where you had these new institutions formed, the Bretton Woods Institutions, the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, and you have agencies like the Peace Corps, which really does have a kind of altruistic ethos to it. And while I think everybody would see that foreign assistance serves national interests and has political dimensions to it, also there is a genuine, genuine sincere desire to promote prosperity and rights around the world. And reduce poverty and reduce suffering and haul people out of the right. floodwaters, Im improve right? Improve the human yeah, condition. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, that being said, there was a particularly cynical political side to this, which involved assassinating, you know, a lot of heads of state and corrupting others so that these countries also would stay dominated and and suppliers of raw materials to their former colonial you, you have know. the geopolitics yeah that, you have the cold war during that period so there's that competition going right. on and right. then there's ideology which is beyond just the and there's national. straight up domination you know I and mean, there's you the know, desire to control extraction. trade resources right. economic so i'm not resources. trying to make it out like a golden age right i'm not i mean i think we need to be very careful about who bore the brunt but i do hear you saying that say from 1980 onward we've we're going you, back you, to becoming the, like the gilded age we're moving in the wrong direction Correct. in terms of our efforts globally and locally right. 
to promote greater inclusion, to promote rights, to promote prosperity or eliminate poverty. Those mega objectives of the international development community, what you're saying is that despite our efforts... We're losing. Maybe... Our efforts are actually making it worse. So that's the darker side of development. It is. Because what we're doing is reinforcing these networks. We're letting them capture the revenue stream. And we're also allowing, I mean, this again is a kind of big idea, but so much of this race for zeros in bank accounts is predicated on the extraction of resources and conversion of them into money. And it's an ever-growing, it has to be an ever-growing GDP, an ever-growing bank account. This planet is finite. The real assets that this planet disposes of is finite. And what we need to be doing right now is gearing our whole economy toward a regenerative, cyclical economy. So I was going to ask you, what can we do as a way of breaking this kind of vicious cycle that, that you've described? On the do no harm side of things, I think it's irresponsible to go in as development actors into countries like this with no visibility on on the networks. You have to sit down and do the work, and it's not that hard to get at least a basic idea that says, okay, presuming in a any country where corruption is a big problem which is just about any developing country you have to assume the this type of network is operating so you figure out what are the specific elements of state function that they've captured right and you can do this talking to local journalists or ngos or but it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation because it can be dangerous you know so you have to get the right people in the room and things like that or but, if it's too dangerous maybe that is a pretty clear indication of what can and can't be accomplished that's a good point and you figure out what are the chief revenue streams that they're capturing and you f- start thinking through what are the enablers who are the sort of witting or unwitting colluders with this Mm -hmm. and too often that's where i would put development assistance and so then you have to figure out how do we do this without inadvertently reinforcing the very networks that are impoverishing and so that that is the classic dilemma isn't it that you have development assistance and and development actors who go in order to try to improve the overall well-being of the communities they're working in, both socially and economically and politically. And yet their efforts may wind up reinforcing exactly. the very system right. that right. is holding people down. So if down. there's no way to do any work without reinforcing the system, then don't do work. So know? this is one of my biggest criticisms of international development work. Very often international organizations go into a country and in their desire to be a neutral player, to to respect the local authorities and to respect local customs and local traditions, they take an attitude that the work they do is divorced from the politics of the country or the locality that they're operating in, as if somehow they can operate as neutral actors and not be subject to the politics of the country. And that's a fallacy. It's a complete fallacy. To me, that's one of the great blind spots. Exactly. So the first thing you have to do is choose not to be blind and choose to see these networks. And that means you have to spend some time researching them. You know, you need to put some resources against that. 
And the problem is then we get into the whole issue of the internal incentive structures of development organizations, which typically are to spend money to get people, you know, to do some action that you can count. Well, golly, if you say we just spent money examining the networks, that's not helping right, right. people Who's on the ground, right? right? You know, <laughs> and not only that, when I've advised foreign ministries and things like that, or even sometimes the U.S. State Department, what I get is, ooh, that's too sensitive. Well, that's my point. And I'm like, wait a second. It's too sensitive to know who's who in the zoo, and it's not too sensitive to send millions of dollars or euros in there? Yeah. <laughs> I, again, I think that's one of the great paradoxes. Let's take the best meaning incentives, which is to help people, to have resources reach people who are in need and improve their access to health services, improve their access to education. And so there is a concern or a fear that if we touch on these political or too sensitive nodes of the network, we won't be able to achieve our objectives of improving education, improving healthcare, well, and so forth. maybe we won't. Let me give you another example. So let's take Ebola. Okay, I get it. When it's a humanitarian crisis, you go in there and you bury the dead. It's, right? it's an urgent you know, situation. Urgent. You go in and do You're that. responding, But yes. the reason we had an Ebola crisis was because of the corruption within the health sectors of these countries, right? And so if you just keep delivering immediate urgent health care, you're going to get another Ebola crisis. And that's the problem. And so on some level, I want to say it might be something like creative destruction. I mean, I think it's true. At some point, you might have to sacrifice some current good doing for a future trajectory. And that's at a operational level. But if you take it up to a national or international level, especially looking at the current trends, you run into the issue of sovereignty. So now the argument that I hear policymakers putting forth is that we can't really hold our partner countries accountable for the types of things you're talking about because they're sovereign and that's their business. Well, but it's our money. One of the things that disturbs me about the current trajectory of discourse in international affairs is the rise of nationalism And along with that ideology goes the idea that whatever a country does within its own borders is its own business. And it's free to operate these networks. It's free to extract as much. Maybe so, but but then it's our money. Then we're also free to not feed it what it craves, which is money. And that means FDI, foreign direct investment, as well as... Public resources. As well as public resources. So I'm, again, as I'm looking at these networks, I'm looking at Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of Mm -hmm. State, right? So now she runs this consulting firm that consults with a vulture investment fund that profited off of debt extraction that impoverished the people of Peru and Argentina. She also has her own hedge fund. And she bought an energy company that makes temporary electricity generating plants 
fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And I remember not that company, but that kind of plant in Afghanistan where, you know, you got nothing but sunshine. Apart from rocks, you got nothing but sunshine in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Like, why didn't somebody put up 10 megawatts of solar power? You know, to be fair, in the period you're talking about, the solar solutions and the engineering behind them. They were them. already up to 10. I, ch I researched it. Even today, they're still a little wobbly. Let's start. Let's do something. Okay? I'm all for okay. renewables. So this company markets itself to the mining industry in Africa, which we know is a particularly extractive, exploitative, right. captured by networks. And guess who most of their contracts or many of their contracts are with? USAID. None of this is illegal. But well, and you... some of it's probably not even deliberate. Some of the linkages really reinforce each other, but they may reinforce each other by circumstance, not by design. I doubt it. I'm sorry. A lot of this comes back down to ethos. If you believe in empowering and lifting up developing countries from the crisis they're in. Do not invest in companies whose business model is predicated on keeping them in that kind of crisis. Sure, FDI is good. Sure, development assistance is good. If it's actually pushing the wheel away from corrupt extractive processes toward genuinely regenerative, horizontally structured, citizens' oversight, democratic in every sense of the word. I'm so happy you're making the point about the responsibility of the private sector because we hear so much emphasis put on the importance of the private sector being the engine of growth, and certainly it is an engine of growth. But what you're pointing out is that it can also be one of the engines that fuel these networks that paradoxically contribute to underdevelopment. They may fuel growth, but they capture all the growth. And so they capture all the economic growth. And so the ordinary population has less resources, is more impoverished, both spiritually, in terms of their communities, in terms of their land and water and air, and in terms of their future options. Right. Sarah, thanks for sharing your perspectives with us. I'm sure the listeners have really appreciated the kind of insight you bring that you outline in your book, Thieves of State, which is an absolute must read for anybody who's interested in international development. Do you find that most people agree with you or are there some things that almost no one agrees with you? I find most people, at least that I have spoken with about this, tend to agree. In particular, ordinary people tend to agree. Mm -hmm. The people who start having a hard time with it tend to be more elite types. People who are operating those networks? Maybe not operating, but who may inadvertently be enabling or participating in some way in some way or benefiting benefiting, yes. benefiting in uh -huh. some way i think opinion on this has moved since i was working within the system i think also events just lined up the arab spring the U the ukraine revolution and then everything that's been happening ever since has kind of brought these issues to the surface 
Earlier, again, there was this split between decision makers. They could not get their heads around this and regular people for whom it seemed pretty obvious. Right. But in terms of development, I would say as a residue of this process of some changing views on this, what's left that I think a lot of particularly development actors disagree with is something we touched on in this conversation, which is, is it possible that development assistance in aggregate is doing more harm than good? And that is the question we're going to try to answer throughout this year as we take a look at the darker side of development. I'd like to wrap up our episode by asking you, what's one lesson you've learned that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think in the development context, I think the most important lesson that I learned was be careful who your intermediary is between you and the community that you wish to assist or learn about or whatever it might be. Someone plays the gatekeeper role between you and that community. And often that's a person who becomes your friend or colleague and comrade. Right, but it's an incredibly powerful position. And so that's why, for example, learning languages is incredibly important, but it's, it's crucial to try not to have just one. And believe me, I've slipped into the just one again and again and again, so it's hard to resist. That is a wonderful lesson for anybody who wants to do not just international development work, but any kind of work in human development. This conversation has been a great way to start this season which is looking at the darker side of development. Thank you very much for sharing the perspective with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, what a great conversation. Uh, Listeners, thanks for tuning in. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this conversation. Add to the conversation. Share comments and feedback with us and leave a review for the podcast. Share it with your friends and stay tuned. We invite you to join us next month when I'll be talking with Raj Kumar, who's the head of DevX, which is uh, a media platform for the international development community. And we'll have another thought-provoking discussion. I'll see you then.